special guest with us tonight. The, the uh, Grace Fellowship uh, Conference was wonderful last week, I understand. And, and uh, Brother Pastor from uh, Billings, Montana, Brother Rod Griffin, is uh, with us tonight. And uh, he has a real unique testimony about uh, uh, coming to the realization of the crucified life in Christ, and um, I wanted Brother Rod to come and take a few minutes and just share that testimony, how God brought him into victory, and in a minute we'll look over our prayer sheet and I'll uh, open the word for a few minutes, but uh, Brother Rod from Billings, Montana, good to have you, Brother. Y'all had your first snow yet? I didn't have a whole lot of snow, I don't know. Maybe so. Good to have you, Brother Rod. I think they did. You can, you can leave that there or hold whatever you want to do. Maybe not. Okay. That'll work. It's good to be here, and uh, I'm real comfortable in cowboy boots, so well, I you know. I learned years ago to work better when you turn on. Alright. 30 years to learn that. <laughs> it is good to be here. This is my first time in Tennessee, and just a, it's just a great time to see all the beauty. I did grow up in a very beautiful area of the Black Hills of South Dakota, where Mount Rushmore is. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Um, but I just want to share a little bit about what has become God's story. And isn't, isn't it neat that our story can become God's story? Um, when it was mine, it didn't go too well. Uh, but but it, got, it became a part of His. And I just like to have a word of prayer for I begin. Father, I just thank you today, uh, most of all, that your love can be experienced in a very real, real way in our lives. Most importantly, through the cross. And uh, if there's anything good, uh, tonight that's shared is because of you. And so um, help us just to focus on you as, uh, as uh, the story's told about how you've worked in my life. And may all the glory be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was born into a very loving home, into a pastor's home, and uh, had one older brother who was a couple years older than me, and uh, very much a loving home. Uh, grew up in a in a lineage of pastors, my grandfather on both my maternal side and my paternal side were also ministers of the gospel. Um, when I was not quite six years old, uh, my father passed away with cancer. He had pancreatic cancer. He uh, was diagnosed when I was about three. Pancreatic cancer is a very fast-moving cancer. Uh, it's called the silent cancer because oftentimes when you start to realize you have symptoms and you go in to check, and this was his case, it was, it was spread all through his body. He'd gone to Mayo Clinic, his diagnosis was you have about three months to live. He lived about two years because his heart was so strong. He passed away when I was just a couple months away from turning uh, six years old. And, uh, but during that time, I became very close to my dad. It was those development years. And my mom was a school teacher, my older brother was in school, and uh, as, as the cancer started to take over in his body, uh, eventually he was bedridden, but he was, he was home, and so I was there with him, and oftentimes he was unable to keep food down. They actually took part of his large intestine, they took his, ended up taking his esophagus out, they took part of his large intestine and made a, a food channel with that, but he was not able uh, to keep food down. And uh, in that process, as I'm getting a little older and have time to spend with him, he loved the outdoors, he loved to hunt. 
he was athletic. He was six foot two. My mom was only five foot, so I accused my mom of holding me down because uh, I didn't get very tall. But loved sports. I grew to love sports. And uh, but during that time, my dad taught me how to read. He taught me basic math. Hadn't gone to school yet, so by the time I entered school, I was well advanced. They didn't have where we lived at preschool and all of that back then. But when he passed away, I was so close to him that when he died, something died within me. And I didn't understand it. And growing up in a Christian home, and, and it was around that time that I asked Jesus Christ into my heart. But when he died, something died within me, as I said. And, and I bought into two lies that nobody told me but the enemy. And one of them is that if I had been a better kid, my dad wouldn't have had to die. So I took the responsibility to blame for my dad's death. Because we aren't perfect. Kids are naughty, they do things. But I just felt like if I had been better, I would, my dad wouldn't have had to die. But somehow it was a punishment. I didn't tell anybody that. Nobody told me that. Nobody knew that I believed that. And the second lie that I bought into was that I would never get close to anybody else again other than people that I was already close to because if something happened to them, it hurt too much. I was close to my mom. I was close to my grandparents, my brother. I didn't have trouble making friends. But, but that would cause a conflict in, within me uh, that, that ca would cause a great battle. The church, the church was important to me because I wanted to be a good kid. I, I loved the church. Uh, we were in church every time the doors were open. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Grew up, went to the youth group, um, was president of the youth group for a while. But the other relationships in school, I was just kind of distant. And I felt, I felt a call to the ministry. When I was in high school, my brother went into the ministry. And when I was in Bible school, I always had a dream that I would someday get married, have a family. I grew up in a loving family. That's what I wanted. And to serve the Lord. But there was a great conflict within me. Because I could not get close in a relationship with a girl because I was too afraid. It would hurt too much. Rejection was a strong power in my life. And so I could not do that. My second year became a year of turmoil in my life. I believe, John, you talked about making a, a total commitment. I believe I did that at the beginning of the year. But my total commitment was, I'm going to, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be the best I can. We're going to turn this, turn this place upside down for you. It wasn't very long after that, and my world got turned upside down. I wanted, I wanted to have a family and to meet the right girl, but I thought that it would be in meeting the right girl that that would take care of all of the spiritual needs of my life as well, the psychological. Nobody can be that person and the source of your joy. But I thought I needed that. I was looking for it in a person, but scared to death. And I sang, I was singing on a, a, on a gospel team, and we would travel on the weekends for the school. We would travel around the churches. 
And uh, there was there was three guys and three gals, and we would stay at homes. So the gals would go with some people, and the guys would go with some other people. And uh, one of the gals I really liked. I, I just I, I knew she was a strong Christian. I felt like that's the person that I would like to get to know and have a relationship with. But I was scared to ask her out because there was a great fear of rejection in me. And uh, fall break came, and, and I was living in South Dakota, and the Bible school was down in Oklahoma, and it was too far for me to go home, and, and the church had some activities going on for the college students, and so I actually got brave enough to ask her to go with me, and she said she would. And uh, I asked her about a week in advance, and I realized that, and then I took off time from work so that I could go. And I realized I forgot to tell her what time I'd pick her up. So a couple days before, I, I said, uh, what time would you, I called her and I said, what time would you like me to pick you up? And she said, well, something's come up. I'm not going to be able to make it. And uh, I, I thought, okay. And uh, felt a little bit bad about that, but, but things happened. I didn't realize. But this was not, this was still a thing for college students and I had time off. And so I thought, well, I'll go by myself. I wasn't doing anything else. I'd already had time off from work. And I went to the event, and I remember opening the door. And when I opened the door, the first thing I did, it wasn't too far, and I saw her, and she was with another guy. And that may not mean much to you, but for me, it was just a feeling of rejection. And, and it, it just tore me. You see, because there was never a relationship that had started, but it just felt so much like rejection. And something happened because within me, there was stuff that was suppressed in me that I did not realize. And the guy that she was with, I began to hate. It just seemed like he had everything together and I didn't. And I didn't like it because he, he just, it seemed like whatever he wanted to do, he was good at. And it just caused me to hate. And I became bitter. And I, I, I knew that it wasn't right. It was convicting me. And I tried to ignore him, but it became impossible to ignore him because in the door, he dormed right next to me. I saw him every day. Wanting to be good for God, I was reading my Bible. I was traveling with the, the gospel team. My schedule was so full that year. I was taking 18 credit hours. I would start my classes at 7.30 in the morning. I would be done by 2.30 because I had them all packed in there because I was also working my way through school and taking eight hours or doing a full schedule of work. So I would work from 3 o'clock till 11 at night. I would come back on campus. The only time our group could practice was when I got off work, which, which meant we usually did about an hour of practice at midnight. And I would go to bed at night. And I would read scripture and I could not fall asleep because I had this hatred and I felt like I was wrestling with God because God, if I, I'm going to, I, I want your will, but I want it to be my way. And if I become good enough, you'll work everything out to make it fit me. And so I thought if I tried to be better, God would do it the way I wanted it to work out. The harder I tried, the worse it got. And the worse it got, the less I understood. And so I'll try something else. And it became a vicious cycle. 
trying harder, getting worse, understanding it less, night after night. You'd think I was, would have been a quick murder that this isn't going very well, but I did that for a year. And I could not fall asleep, and God seemed distant to me, and I would find myself wrestling with God. I would find myself sometimes wrestling with the devil, but most of all wrestling with me. And about 6 o'clock in the morning, I would be so tired of wrestling that I would, I would finally start to just be exhausted and start to fall asleep when I had to get up because I had classes at 7.30. Night after night, that lasted a year. I became depressed. I thought I could hide that from other people. I'm still going out and singing the gospel. I'm studying for the ministry. I was into God's Word, and God's Word was very convicting to me because I can remember reading where it said, if we say we love God and hate our brother, we're the same as a murderer, and no murderer has eternal life. And I'm thinking, how does that fit in? I gave my life to Jesus Christ as a young boy. I started to doubt my salvation. But God wasn't near. But I wanted Him to be. Somehow I remember that in this, that it felt like I was in a dark tunnel. But somehow, I, as I look back on it, it must have been the Holy Spirit. That, he, that the, it always seemed like there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. But I didn't know how long I was in this tunnel. And I, I even thought, God, how can you love me when I'm like this? What good am I to you? What good am I to anybody? I began to think, why did I just check out on life? But I knew that it would hurt some people that I love, and I couldn't do it. I remember, I, I felt like I had to work this out myself. I didn't talk about it to anybody else. I was kind of a quiet person. And uh, that went on for an entire year. That summer came, and I decided I wouldn't go home. I stayed down there, and I worked, and uh, I was away from the people that I hated, and I knew it was not right, but I, I wanted to get over it, but I couldn't. And finally, when the next year started, I finally said, God, I can't take another year like this. I was starting to let go. And in one of the theology classes where we were studying about the Holy Spirit, the, the prof was talking about the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, which means comforter. And he said, you know, we need to be careful that we don't understand the comforter in our own human terms. Because sometimes we can just think of him as somebody that sort of pats us on the head and says, you've been through some tough things, and I just kind of feel sorry for you. You know, we can learn to, to, in ourselves to where we almost kind of like that ourselves. And, and he said... But he said he's the kind of comfort that says, you may have been doing tough things, but if you'll quit feeling sorry for yourself and take my hand, we can get out, out of this mire and this muck, and we can move on. And I began, the Holy Spirit was working on me because I began to realize I had spent a lot of my life feeling sorry for myself when my dad had died. And I failed to tell you, and I haven't told you this part, two years after my dad had died, my mom and my brother had gone over to Rapid City, South Dakota to a revival service. I didn't go because I was involved in something with a basketball or something, I don't remember, and I stayed with my grandparents. And after supper, I'd gone over to the neighbor's house and we were playing. And, and in the evening, I got a phone call 
And it was my grandmother, and she said, Rod, you need to come home right away. She said, your mom has been in a serious accident. Come to find out, they were at a, at a, they had gone out after the service to get something to eat, and they were turned in a left hand, going to make a left-hand turn, and they were stopped. Somebody didn't see them in the rear end of them. The pastor was wanting to, looking into buying a car. It was my mom's car, it was totaled. And so she had let him drive. They were sitting in the back seat. It was right around the time when John Kennedy had been assassinated. We'll give you a time frame. And they took him to the hospital. The doctor checked him out said there's nothing. My grandfather went to get her to bring her and my, my brother home. And I can remember when they told me that, I was thinking, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. But the grace of God had answered a prayer that my mom had made years before that that she would, he would not take her life until my brother and I were raised. She came home, she walked into the house and collapsed. She didn't talk about much about it then, but she had what we hear now as an out-of-body experience. She said it was like she floated up into the corner room, she was looking, my grandfather was praying over her and, and a little bit she felt herself pulled back into that. And she just, that was what it was common to talk about those things, so she thought, it was kind of crazy. So she did share that for years later. But, but by being collapsed, they, we took her to the hospital there in our town. And she was checked out and found out she had a broken neck and three broken vertebrae. Many people tried to counsel her and said, you could sue for malpractice. But she said it's not right. And she refused. She's lived with some pain all her life. Never complained. I have great respect for my mom. All of this in the new year, going flash forward now back to college, I was beginning to let go because I realized I'd spent a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. And I knew I, I, I didn't love myself. I was no good to God. Trying to be. Trying to gain His acceptance. And you see what happens is so oftentimes we can have a knowledge that God loves us and we can know it cognitively. But when something happens into our lives, it feels like God doesn't love us. And I had made that my reality. I still believed that God loved me, but it didn't feel like it. And I lived out of this reality. And so I was constantly trying to work for God's love and His approval. And I can remember that, that these truths are starting, I, I'm starting to realize how much I've spent my life and I didn't want to feel this way, and I'm finally letting go. And that was a good thing. There was starting to be some peace. I, I, I can't tell you, I don't have time to tell you all the turmoil and the depths of it. But it was in November, I don't remember the exact date, but November of 1975, and I went over to breakfast, and there's a, we have a dam in the middle of the campus, beautiful campus. And I'd gone to breakfast and I was walking back to my room and I'm thinking about the Lord and I, I'm, I'm starting to really let go. And I don't, everybody's experience is different. I'm not used to hearing voices. I just, or, or those kinds of things, but I can tell you this is what happened to me. As I'm walking across the dam, I heard somebody yell my name. It was so real to me that I can remember turning around, looking to the, to the campus center to see who yelled my name, and there was no one there. And my first thought when I saw that was, Rod, you're losing it. 
And I heard it again. So real. I don't know what the voice was in me, out of me, where, but it was so real. It's just like if you said my name out loud right now. This time I stopped. I didn't turn around. I heard four more words. When I stopped, I was silent. And the four words I heard were, I really love you. And I didn't question that it was God. I seemed to accept it. And I can remember thinking within myself, the gospel is so simple and yet so profound. And how can God love me when I can't even love myself? That was amazing that somehow it got from here to here that God loved me. And, I, and it just felt like a burden lifted from me so much that I felt so light I felt like I could have just floated. I didn't. But it felt like that. And I felt free for the first time in my life. And no longer did I have this hatred for the person that I hated and been bitter toward. I began to realize, you know what? I need to realize that maybe there are other people that are living in their self-life and what they need to do. And rather than having a condemning attitude toward people, I needed to see, God, how can we help people understand that they can be set free from themselves? And there are people who are in the ministry, and there are people who are in our churches, and there are people who are doing all kinds of things, but they're doing it for a motive to find some kind of acceptance and love from God. And I felt so free. And I also remember that when I went back to my room, and I told you I'd still been reading my Bible, and my Bible was open, and it said, Now truly we are the sons of God. Now I have been, but I was, it, it became a reality. It was appropriated in my life. And, and that has changed my life. Ministry is not out of trying to win God's approval. Ministry has become a joy. And I don't have to work to go out and, and I, I can't begin to tell you the things that he has begun to transform in my thinking. I don't have to be busy a hundred hours a day trying to do things for God because He will bring things now and I can work with God. And sometimes we're so busy that we miss God's agenda because I've got all these things I've got to do for God and He may be bringing something across my path that wasn't on my agenda today, but He wants me to share the love of Christ. And I can tell you, that has life been good? No. I, I, I got over my fear of girls. I got married, have a couple boys, have seven grandkids. Now they're all six and under. <laughs> but I will tell you that the wife that I married had, some, had some, a lot of baggage in her life. And I tried to rescue her. And I thought if I love her enough, that that would be enough. But she couldn't let go of the self-life. We actually, I don't know whether it was 1980 or 18, 1989 or 1990, 
But we went to see a counselor that we had heard of in Denver, Colorado, and we found out his name was Dr. Charles Solomon. My wife had had a number of issues with men in, in growing up, and she had a great distrust for men, and she would transfer that over. And, and it was transferred to me, but I knew that I needed to keep loving her. But one day she said, I'm leaving. And I don't believe in divorce, but I found myself divorced. But I will tell you that in the midst of that, I ended up leaving the church that I was at. There were people who were saying to me, Rod, your ministry's done. But I am thankful that my identity was not tied to that anymore. It was tied to Jesus Christ. And God somehow kept whispering in my ear. He was very close to this time. He was saying, I've got a purpose. I've got a plan. I've got a future for you. When it was brothers and sisters in Christ who were telling me I was done. I was finding people starting to come more and more. I, I found some incredible ways to minister to people. I can remember going and listening to some missionaries talking. They had been very discouraged. And they were talking about, the lady was talking about how they'd been down in Mexico for a number of years and not seen God do anything. And she was picking up after her children. She had a little toy in her hand. And, she, and, and God said, what kind of whisper to her? What's that in your hand? And she looked at her toy. And they hadn't seen one, one thing done for God in two years. And she, he said, she, she thought, I've got this toy. And she looked out and saw her kids playing with some of the little Mexican kids. And she thought, you know, we need to start something. She felt prompted by the Holy Spirit. We need to start a ministry for the children. Mexicans, from what I understand and what she shared, are so family-oriented that when they started some, some ministries for the children, the children came, the mom's team, the dad's team, the grandma's team, the grandma's team, everybody came and God began to do a work. But while she's sharing that, I'm looking at my hands. I just happened to be the the youth evangelist at that time and, and, and uh, I was listening to her speak and I was looking at my own hands what's in your hands my divorce had just happened I was leaving my church and I, and I said God there's a lot of hurt and pain, pain in my hand but I know you're very real to me and you've been with me through this process and when I said there's a lot of pain and hurt in my hand it's like he whispered in my ear give it to me I can use it and, and, and through through a number of things, he has led me into a ministry. My ministry at that moment was not a lead pastor anymore, but he's led me into one that's more focused, and it's on the focus of hope. That people that are hurting. I see you have a grief share. I lead grief share in, in my church. We have a divorce care that takes that, and we get people from outside the church because they have nowhere else to go. And I'm saying the church ought to be the one that's, that's giving the gospel of hope to people. And God's led me into a counseling ministry. And I'm not, I've not been trained in, in counseling. I have a ministerial degree, but not a counseling degree. Through, the, through going to, to Dr. Solomon, I've, I've done a lot of, on my own of understanding that we are body, soul, and spirit. And sharing. And when, I, when now I'm starting to learn that there's something that I can understand because God's been helping me, but... But through the conference of those things, we understand what God does in us. And there is such a joy because I don't have to be responsible for the success of people having their lives. It's up to Him. I just get the privilege of nudging to Him, them to Him. But when I get out of the way, He does some incredible things. And I don't have time to tell you. It's, but it's not about me. I'm still learning. And it's fun. 
It's fine. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know he's in control, and he might bring somebody across my path for some reason, and I don't know why, but it may be on his agenda. It's okay. And it's a joy. And, and if living for him and him being our life isn't a joy and a peace that he promises, because it's his peace, it's his joy in us. And, and uh, I know that many of you have probably experienced that. And God bless you. And I'm, I, I owe my life to him, not out of duty. And uh, I've even told him, I said, you can, you can do with me whatever you want. And if you have to take me through any kind of experiences that are painful, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay a million dollars to go through some stuff in my own life again. But I am grateful for them because in the process that he was working, I discovered who he is. Amen. And I'm still learning more and more about him. I've only scratched the surface of how great his love is. But it is a joy. And, and I owe my life to him. And I told him, I said, I'd rather be in the wilderness with God than on the mountaintop without him. And I'm not talking about the wilderness we talk about, but there. But, but because you know why? Because if you're on the mountaintop without him, it's a great view, but you can't enjoy it. But you enjoy it wherever you're at. When the mystery of Christ in us is the Lord. Thanks for listening. And uh, God bless you. Amen. Thank you, Brother Bob. Appreciate that, Brother. Very interesting. Uh, very interesting testimony about the reality of Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And uh, thank you for that, brother.